welcome to Behind the Glass Cabinet, a podcast where I, Ellie Armstrong, explore how science is constructed and displayed in museums. Each week, I'll be joined by a co-host for a conversation about a particular item you can go and see in a London museum. Together, we'll challenge, dissect and celebrate the stories the artefact could tell. This week, I've gone to join my guest co-host at the Science Museum. Um, so I'm Shaz and I am an assistant curator at the Science Museum. been here for a year now. Um, so I'm talking about sunscreens today and about sunscreens that are on display in our gallery, in the Challenge of Materials Gallery, um, which I have a personal interest in um, and happily coincides with the new Sun exhibition, which I think opens at the end of this month my marketing hat on <laughs> in October <laughs> um, so what's your personal interest in the gallery then um, so I think the challenge of materials gallery if people don't know it um, it um, it has a lot of objects that I think are very relatable um, they're things that you would find in your everyday lives um, things that maybe you don't really notice or you take for granted a little bit um, I think it's one of the easiest galleries to sort of walk into and sort of feel a connection with something, at least one or two things to pick out and say, oh, I know what this is, I have this in my house, this is familiar to me, um, which I think you don't often get in uh, many museums, and I think that is kind of the beauty of the Science Museum in that there's a lot of things that are very relatable. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of like a, a bit of a leveller, which I like. I remember going there when I was, like, first coming here, and um, they have the like nose bit of the front of the Formula One cars. Mm-hmm. I used to watch that with my parents all the time when I was little, yeah. and I was like, I've never seen one in real life, this is so cool. Um, and then, yeah, like there's all the stuff in like the bathroom cabinet that's stuff that you would see at home, yeah. so it's like, yeah, it's really like a big span of materials. It is, and it's like a, it's a very broad subject, challenge of materials, We're talking about materials that could be many 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 different things um so i think there's a lot of um potential in that gallery um for a lot of conversations but perhaps um those stories not all of those stories have been brought out yet so that's kind of what i'm going to try and do now hopefully <laughs> awesome so the like in the challenge of materials uh, there's like a bed bathroom mm-hmm. um, cabinet display there is um, and there's like some sun cream there do you want to talk about what it looks like so yeah so um I'm going to guess this 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 exhibition went up sort of in the 90s by the looks of the products. Yep, um, lots it's, of lovely old branding. There is, which is kind of nostalgic and nice at the same time. It kind of reminds me of opening my bathroom cabinet at home when I was a child and looking at all the things that my mum had inside our cabinet. Um, but it is, in a sense, kind of like that old school museum display case where there is sort of like a lot of things crammed in behind a glass pane and um, sort of made yeah made to look like a bathroom cabinet and inside you have products like toothpaste and like Vaseline and DP and all sorts of other things um, and you also have a number of different types of sunscreen um, so you have Soltan which is um, a really famous brand in the UK and it's um, the Boots own brand sun cream so it's one of the most affordable um, and I think a lot of people will be very familiar with that brand. You also have um, I think Ombre Solaire and Piz Buin and maybe some L'Oreal products in there too. But again, the branding and packaging is it's very old and quite dated now. And I think in the time that that gallery has been up, some screens have changed quite a lot and quite rapidly. So has the packaging and the branding and sort of the marketing and advertising too. Yeah, so because sun cream is to block out sunlight, right? And yeah. so when you say like it's changed quite a lot, what kind of technology was being used in the stuff that's in the gallery? So the stuff in the gallery um, is mainly, so if we talk, we're looking at sort of sunscreens and how they work. You've got 
your UVA stuff and your UVB stuff. Um, and uh, a good sunscreen will have broad, what we call broad spectrum, which will cover UVA and UVB. And that, I think, is two very confusing different things. But I think in the past, historically, we've sort of been just focusing on the UVB stuff. And UVB is, the way I like to think about it, is B for burning. So UVB is sort of the immediate effects that you see from the sun. The, the rays are much shorter, the radiation rays are much shorter, and they, um, the, the way you see them will be things like burning, turning red if you're quite pale, or um, the physical effects of having sun on your skin. And that's the kind of stuff, because you can see it, that um, people are more inclined to want to be able to protect or change or stop that from happening, um, because you can physically see it. You know, you put on sunscreen and you don't turn red or you don't start burning, then you know it's working. Mm. Um, and so historically, those have always been quite sort of physical um, sunblocks. So you might have seen like cricketers in the past had like that really thick white paste oh, on their zinc nose. sticks, yeah. Yeah, zinc sticks. So like zinc has been used for like thousands of years. Um, and it is physically just the white because it reflects the sun like it's a good physical barrier so if you're happy to have white paste all over your face then yeah that's great like it's a good physical barrier um and even i think up until like maybe like the last 10 years or so sunscreens have always been like quite thick and white and pasty which is fine if you've got pale skin already generally it kind of blends in but um for people of colour, people with darker skin, uh, it shows up immediately. And I remember vividly as a child in the summer, my mum putting sunscreen on me and I just went like lavender coloured. <laughs> like, it just went purple. And it looked really ashy and like a ghost for like at least a few hours. <laughs> so yeah, so that, that's probably the type of sunscreen that you would see on display in our gallery now. Um, and thankfully now like a lot of sunscreens won't do that um, because there's different technology involved. The way that the um, particles are put together for the physical side of the sunblock is very different. We have things like um, nanotechnology and the micronizing of um, the physical sunblocks. Um, there's a bit of controversy around the nano. Um, a lot of people are a bit worried that perhaps because the nanoparticles are so small that you'll be able to absorb them into your bloodstream. Um, I think the jury's still out on that, although I would say that they are coated in silicon, which is too big to pass through. Um, so that should hopefully put people's mind at rest but um, so the micronized and the nano helps the particles be so small that you don't really see them on the skin anymore okay. um, so that's when you can get like the kind of transparent ones now yeah but oh. you, you'll kind of see they kind of look a bit shiny a bit glittery but if you blend them in nicely then like they kind of sheer out and then you don't really see them anymore which sort of makes sunscreens a bit more accessible to other people now um, but there's, I think there's a numerous different reasons why people still aren't using sunscreens, particularly if you have darker skin. Hmm. So that's like, is that just for UVB? So, so yeah, so the physical block will just be UVB, and then you have your UVA, which is the longer rays, and these are, this is the type of damage that you don't see. Um, and it's sort of the long-term damage that causes aging and like pigmentation and skin cancer and things like that. And because you don't see it and you don't notice it straight away, um, a lot of people have been sort of blind to um, the damage that UVA causes. Thankfully now like we're aware that both UVA and UVB need to be protected against. Mm. Um, so now you have these broad spectrum sunscreens. Um, and UVA you tend to get more like, um, there'll be like chemical um, sunscreens. Um, and those have lots of different types of chemicals in them which um, again cause some controversy because the higher the SPF the more chemicals there are and if you're sensitive to that kind of thing then perhaps a high SPF 
is maybe not so suitable for you either. Um, so there's a lot of like debate about like what uh, what rating of SPF you should be using, how you're supposed to be using it. I think there's not that much guidance, or it's not very clear. The public generally aren't that aware of like how you should be using sunscreens responsibly, how you should be shopping for them, which ones you should be looking for. And there's a lot on the market, so I think it can be quite confusing. But as long as you remember, you have the UVA and UVB. There are others as well, but those are the sort of two we're talking about now. Um, and to get a good combination of the two, I think, is really important. And so with the sun creams in the gallery at the moment, have both the UVA and the UVB protection? Or is that... I think they should do, hopefully. Because okay. they're from the relatively recent past. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I don't think uh, the standard of UVA protection um, is as good as you would find now in the stores. Um, so there's a lot of different... Um, types of chemicals that we're using now that maybe weren't available when that gallery was first put up and I think maybe um, the public weren't as aware of the damage that yeah. could be caused. Okay, so like going back, was Suncreed, like Suncreed is presumably not something that like people were using historically? Historically, yes. So um, yeah, people were using sunscreens in the past. Um, so people were still aware, you could still see, so that UV, UVB damage that we were talking about, like burning, like the physical effects of sun, um, obviously people were really aware of that from day dot. Um, so the ancient Greeks were using things like olive oil. Um, I think in Asia they were using rice as well, which, oh, wow. um, which is really interesting. And like um, both of those ingredients still you find in sunscreens now, mm-hmm. um, especially in Asian products, you'll find a lot of rice powder and things like that. So really effective, because it's why it's a really effective physical barrier again. Um, zinc oxide I think was also used for a really long time as well again currently you still find that in a lot of sunscreens but again it was always the UVB always the burning the physical damage people obviously weren't aware of like uh, aging and skin cancer and pigmentation and things like that and sort of the UVA damage that you could get from the sun but historically like sunscreens in one way shape or form have been used since the very beginning of time, I think. Um, and it's only, I think, recently that there's been like such a huge spike in um, how we look after our skin. Um, and I think that maybe has a lot to do with um, also pollution um, and like the, the impact of like city life and industrialization has really like sped things along as well. Yeah, because I guess like people spend more time like doing things outside. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think um, culture and times change and... Um, also fashion, fashion comes in and out and um, yeah. you know there's some really interesting stuff about um, the fashion of like being tanned or the fashion of being pale and things like that and how much of that has, has shaped, changed and shaped um, how we protect our skin from the sun. Yeah, because I guess if this gallery was in the 90s, that was quite trendy like to be really brown, I remember like people's yeah. parents coming back from holiday and like <laughs> looking really strange. I would always be like, why are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the misconception of like, you know, to have a tan, you need to burn first, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Crazy. Like looking back, you're like, what is this? Not how that works. <laughs> no. And I guess like growing up, were you aware of those kind of things? Like, did you feel like when... I mean, because we grew up at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same time when people I knew were, like, trying to get really brown. Like, were you aware of that? Yeah, I, like, distinctly remember growing up as a kid, like, tan being fashionable and, um, and like, people buying a lot of, like, fake tanning products and things because um, obviously not everybody can afford to go on holiday, go, like, skiing or go, like, sun yourself in, like, the French Riviera. Uh, every few months. <laughs> right. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so, like, the fake tanning products are really popular, um... And I guess 
um, a lot of tanning oils as well and um, so like basting yourself in like some type of oil when you go out in the sun which is super dangerous but people were doing it anyway to like achieve this like constant dark tan um, I think that was weirdly strangely very exclusive only to Caucasian people um, and it became a really sort of strange thing because I think in Asia at least I know from personal experience having a tan is not a very desirable thing at all and actually pale skin like lighter skin tone is is definitely the thing to aim for and achieve um and like conversely there were a lot of products on the asian market uh, aimed at sort of lightening your skin and like bleaching and staying out of the sun and like quite high spfs so at the same time you had these two things going on and i think uh being part of like the asian diaspora like coming to terms with like living in a country where people aspire to be as dark as you were but at the same time your own family wanting you to be pale and light was a very strange sort of situation to be in and like how much politics was involved in like skin colour and like how you look after your skin and things like that so that was really interesting I think. Yeah and I think there's it's interesting thinking now about like from what you've just said thinking about what's in the gallery because like a there's none of this like tanning oil stuff it's quite like mm-hmm. it's quite a, a sense of like these are the these are the creams that you should be wearing like here are yeah. the sensible sun creams that we can like use but equally none of them are like especially high spf and there isn't any of this uh kind of like the bleaching i remember like friends who were um nigerian at school who had like uh, an exfoliator that they would use to like mm. kind of make their skin lighter um, and there's none of that here as well yes that's like a whole like um, side to the coin that I think is not represented in the gallery I think maybe at the time when it was put together um, that wouldn't have been a conversation that was very out in the open even now um, it's like skin lightening in Asian and African communities is very like hush hush and people don't talk about it um, and it's sort of like a bit of a taboo and it's kept under wraps and it's, you know, you if you are pale, you tell people that you're naturally that way rather than... There's a lot of mystery about, like, skin lightening and things like that. But, you know, being told to stay out of the sun is a standard thing, I think, growing up in an Asian household. Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly enough as well, the sun creams that are in the gallery are... A lot of them are oddly positioned next to some of the ski wear from... Um, <laughs> from the protective clothing collection, which I think says a lot about, like... Um, culture at the time and you know like um the aspirational side of like you know being wealthy enough to go on a skiing holiday and like catching that tan but also you know like looking after not getting burnt looking after your skin and I think a lot of that leads back to how there's this really great story about um Coco Chanel in 1923 who obviously a very pale lady but um she went uh, on a holiday like on a yacht in the French Riviera and she got sunburned by accident and being Coco Chanel, she just turned it into like the next big fashion thing. And everybody wanted to be like Coco Chanel. Everybody wanted this like golden brown sunburn tan that she managed <laughs> to achieve, um, which is like such a flip on the head of like what was expected for women and like the beauty standard before. And I think maybe for a long time, like doctors had been sort of saying like, oh, like, you know, but sun is actually quite good for you, like for rickets and tuberculosis and in the new sun exhibition you'll see loads of different like contraptions and gadgets and things um to help people with their like sun exposure um for health reasons and that had slowly been sort of creeping up and i think coco chanel kind of like really like flipped it on its head when she uh, achieved that sunburn that everybody wanted and i think i don't know i don't know if any research has been done into this or not this is my sort of theory that i just came up with that it had a lot to do with maybe the industrial revolution and um previously before where like you know like a tuberculosis pale kind of pasty waif like 
aesthetic was the ideal and you know if you were rich enough you didn't have to work outside and you could maintain that pasty complexion and that was seen as you know like high society skin tone to have um, and then I guess during the industrial revolution if you were poor actually you were working more in the factories and you were indoors a lot more so then you were the one who became pale mm-hmm. and suddenly if you were rich enough you could afford to go traveling with you know, empire and things like that you could go to other countries tropical climates and you could get that tan and that tan showed that you were rich enough mm-hmm. and wealthy enough not to have to work and actually to be able to go on holiday to these amazing tropical places where there was lots of sun and yeah. yeah yeah so I think that could have been part of what helped things to switch but um just goes to show like how fashion can change the way we look after our skin yeah so and it's interesting because that the bit where you're talking about the sun cream in the gallery it's with there's like a like a baby model dressed mm-hmm. up in some like little uh UV protection swimwear yeah, wetsuit thing <laughs> um, <laughs> because that's the other way you can protect yourself if you're not using sun yeah, cream yeah so again the physical barrier thing like wearing a hat wearing sunglasses sunglasses is super important for protecting your eyes um, also just co- physically covering your skin um, and I think that is a really responsible thing that they did do in the gallery is to place that um, model of the baby wearing um, sun protection clothing not just um, the sultan uh, mm-hmm. like sunscreen products next to it um, and I think that's a really important side to protecting yourself from the sun is also like the physical um, wearing the right appropriate clothing. So it's a really nice pairing between our protective clothing collection and our um, material science collection as well. Yeah. But like there's not like a regular sun hat there. It's like mm-hmm. the implication is kind of in the gallery that if you wanted to wear something that would protect you that wasn't sun cream, that mm-hmm. it's like this expensive special sunwear stuff. <laughs> um, not that like uh, your regular hat is fine or your regular yeah, sunglasses. That is true. I think, yeah, if we were to do the gallery again and we were going to have a similar sort of display, I think it would be um, better to have, yeah, like the more accessible clothing where like it's your everyday like bucket hat or like a cap mm-hmm. that you might wear or. Um, things like that, rather than just the baby. Um, yeah. yeah. Especially because it's in the cabinet with, like, the expensive ski wear and, mm. like, the, the high-vis stuff. Like, it's, like, a technical... Yeah, yeah it's, it's, like, specialised yeah, clothing. It's, it, I'd not really thought about it until you were just talking about it. I was like, oh, it's quite... It positions yeah. it as, like, a thing that you have to, like, invest in to mm. be able to clothe yourself in those things. But actually, you're right, it's not specialist, really, at all. Yeah, and I think that's... Um, if we could do some collect- contemporary collecting... For that gallery or for that collection, it would be really great to have some more of the um, the everyday things because those are the things, like I said at the beginning, that you know the accessible, relatable things that we're all sort of drawn to. It'd be great to expand the collection into having like um, affordable or um, more accessible, fashionable or like popular um, sun protection. I mean, even things like um, different sunglasses brands, like um, they've become a fashion statement now. They're not just purely for protection protection has become fashion Um, so yeah there's a lot we could talk about there yeah and so so this is kind of we're looking at what we used to do and then sun cream has changed quite a lot so the stuff that we have in that gallery is probably not massively representative anymore of the stuff that we would be using today yeah so again like um technology has changed a lot with sunscreens um and i think as i mentioned before like um uh, the re- EU regulations about like what sunscreens we wear and like how we get these through clinical trials. Yeah, the EU, <laughs> the EU did us good with the sunscreen. Um, some of the best sunscreens in the world um, you can buy in the EU because they've been really good at like getting these clinical trials through and um, using the best ingredients and like um, really keeping like on top of um, what the new technology is and like how we can always 
provide the best possible protection for people when they're looking to buy sunscreens. Whereas if you compare to the USA, for example, um, their FDA have blocked a lot of different clinical trials and obviously no one company will spend the money to get to pass through their, their ingredients when other people will be able to use them afterwards. So there's like this weird sort of stalemate going on. Um, and perhaps the ingredients in the US are a lot more outdated than what you can get in the EU. Um, so at the moment, while we're still in the EU, like get your sunscreens because <laughs> stock up, but don't stock up too far in advance because they have an expiration they date. They have an expiration date, but look at those ingredients so you know which ones to buy in the future. Exactly. Um, but this is interesting. You're saying that people trial them, so mm. having a look at the clinical trials that are used in sun cream. Yeah. So there's a major flaw in the clinical trials for sunscreen, in that um, they don't disclose or they never seem to target um, different skin tones. So. When we think about sunscreens and you think about like an advert for a sunscreen that you might see, I've never seen an advert for a sunscreen with a person of colour. I don't think I have ever seen one. Yeah, every single person is white and I think is, this is part of the misconception that if you're darker skinned you don't need sunscreen or you don't need it as much as a paler person who will see the physical effects of sun quicker or more obvious than you will as a person of colour. So the uh, tr- clinical trials for sunscreen ingredients if they are using people of colour in them, they're not disclosing, and that is a major issue because they need to also be targeting how do these products and ingredients work on different skin tones, mm-hmm. different types of skin. Um, and then that's why we have um, a lot of sunscreens that just do not work as well or just aren't as effective or um, aren't available and accessible to use for people of colour. So these clinical trials are really flawed in that sense that if the sample size is 100, it could be 100 white people that they've chosen in which case, perhaps that brand or that type of sunscreen is not as useful to you as, or you're not aware of how useful it is to you as a person of colour. Mm. Or if they are using people of colour, they're not saying, so then they're not specifically targeting how it's going to work on those people. And I think that is really useful to know as well. Yeah, because presumably it wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. So to, to produce a single result at the end of those clinical trials is to say, like, mm-hmm. somehow we can, like, homogenise all yeah. these different like reactions to the sun mm. um, and, and like yeah like no skin is the same but at the same time generally I think skin has a natural SPF of about 13 which is really small when you think about like the different levels of sunscreen rating that you can get um, so we all need to use sunscreen it's really important and um, although more white people are diagnosed with skin cancer the, the people who are more likely to die from it are black people yeah. because it's not diagnosed or it's caught really late on because people don't believe you or they don't, they're don't, they not checking for it and people don't notice it happening. So there's like a big issue there. And like, again, with the marketing, it's really irresponsible, I think, of brands not to market sunscreens towards people of colour. And when you do have them not being able to use them because they come out really ashy or they look really weird on your skin or they just don't work for your skin type. Mm. Um, so there's a huge market there available. Um, and I know a lot of like small indie brands are coming up now that are specifically targeted towards people of colour and making uh, sunscreen more affordable and available to them. But again, a large part of it, I think, is education. And you know, if you Google sunscreen, sunscreens for dark, darker skins, one of the bit, first questions that comes up in Google is, do dark-skinned people need to wear sunscreen? And has someone provided a helpful answer to that? They have, thank Fantastic. goodness. Fantastic, because like, the only thing worse than that would be like clicking on that question and some like, person has been like, nope. Yeah, and exactly. like, oh no, this is a disaster. Yeah, but again, like even within our own communities, there's a lot of, um, a lot of misconception about you know, not needing to wear sunscreen or like you don't need to use it or um, you know, like, you're not going to get burnt, so why would you bother? 
and things like that. But, you know, UVA, you can't see that. And um, it's really important to protect your skin. Which, thinking back to the way that the gallery is framed, the little baby that is dressed yeah. up is a white it's a baby. White baby. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, we don't address that, um, the issue of race at all in that gallery, um, which I think is fair enough at the time when that gallery was put together. Um, but again, like this is a huge thing that we're missing out. Um, and, you know, it's a really important debate that we need to engage with, I think. Um, and it is really relevant and it is really current right now. So I think, you know, like technology, yeah, it is improving, but like, I think we also have a duty to educate people. Um, and if it's just the bottle uh, in, on a display, like what, how much can you get from that? Like the material, the science behind it is really important and really interesting. And there's a lot we could say about um, sunscreen. Yeah. And there isn't even like a little label there yeah. to help you access that. Yeah. <laughs> and you could easily walk past it because that cabinet is crammed full of stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's quite interesting because I guess more, the more I think about this now, the more that's like a fairly specific type of person's cabinet, right? Yeah. It's presumably like the kinds of things that the people who curated it, who were white, middle-class yeah. British people. And even if you're looking at the other products that are placed next to it, these aren't necessarily the products that people of colour will be using. Um, you know, there's things like Vaseline, okay, cool, like a lot of people use that, but there's, you know, like the makeup, like it's not, this, these aren't the brands that people of colour are using, those aren't the shades, the colours that people of colour are using. Um, different types of products that we would never use or that we would always use, you know, like the, you know, like I said, you know, I, it look, reminds me of when I open the cupboard and look at what my mom has in there, but there's a few things that I know that she would definitely have that would never feature in that gallery. Like what kind of things? Things like coconut oil or like almond oil and things like that, like you, or henna, like we just wouldn't find that in the gallery, but, you know, these are household items for other people. Um, so again, if you're walking past that gallery, for some people it would be an instant click of like, yeah, I know what this is and others it wouldn't yeah. so I think if we're going to do the gallery again if I had the chance to like refresh the place <laughs> this is a pitch <laughs> wink wink um, <laughs> then yeah then like it would be great to include those other things in there oh the SPF rating we haven't talked about that okay. yet and I've mentioned it a few times now that's another really confusing thing that I think the public again needs a lot of you know some help educating about is the SPF rating so you know you go into a shop and you see okay like there's SPF 15 here and there's SPF 50 over there and I think you know, I know a lot of people would be like, oh, I still want to get a tan, so I'll go for SPF 20 because I need a bit of protection, but, you know, I don't want to get burnt, but I do want a tan. And again, there's a lot of misconception, like, what well, does 20 seems like a really arbitrary number? What's yeah, 20 mean? It's like 20 togs. Like, 20. what is a tog for a duvet? I don't know what this means. <laughs> exactly. I have no frame of reference here. Um, and then on the other hand, you, you know, you have a lot of people who go straight for the 50 because they're like, 50 is the highest. It'll be the best. I'm going to go for that one. Yeah. Um, doesn't quite work like that. Um, cool. It's a bit complicated, but um, the way I like to think of it is a really simple formula of um, take the number that the SPF is, so say you have SPF 10, yep. and multiply that by how many minutes it will take you to start physically seeing the effects of the sun on your skin. Okay. Whether that's starting to feel that tingle of burning or when you start to go a bit red or you come out in a rash or something, whatever your reaction is to the sun, however many minutes it takes multiply that by the SPF rating. Yeah. So again, you know, like 15 on one person is going to work for really differently on another person. So it feels again a bit like an arbitrary number, but um, you know, like you need to, if you go into a shop and you look and you see and you're like, I know like I will react very quickly to the sun, you might want to go for a higher SPF factor. Um, and if you don't, maybe you can go for a bit lower, but um, the difference between the SPS is actually quite small. It's the just the number of chemicals that are, the amount of chemicals that are in um, in that product. So you also need to weigh up about how like sensitive your skin is as well. Like I know for me, an SPF 50, even though it's very high, and that is something I would 
lean towards naturally because I think it's it's a very good uh, protection factor. Like actually, SPF 50 has a high level of concentration of chemicals in it, and that will flare up my eczema. So if I go for something slightly lower and reapply a bit more often, mm. then I can get the good SPF protection, but also at the same time, like not irritate my skin. So I think it's a bit of trial and error. You kind of have to like work out what works for you, but like that simple formula tends to work quite well. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, like a lot of people will naturally go for the higher one and then not reapply. Whereas if you go for the maybe a medium size, like 20 or 30. Medium size. <laughs> medium size one. Uh, go for a 20 or 30, then you're more likely to reapply and you should be reapplying throughout the day, which I know is a bit of a pain in the bum. But um, if well, you're in the sun, like... You don't really want skin cancer, so reapply yeah, the sun cream. Like, skin cancer or minor inconvenience. I know, right? What? One of the two. <laughs> um, I know, yeah. But then, so when we were talking about this, it's, that's not the only variation in what sun cream you can get, right? So mm-hmm. we can choose different factors, but most brands make a number of different factors like five what is that why would you even bother yeah um, uh, <laughs> three to 50 but then we also have like, even in the display here there are two or three different types of sun cream mm. so there's like the sultan there's pisbon is like how much do you think the well firstly the ones that we have here but then more generally are they brand choices and does the protection that you get vary by brand and therefore like I don't know do you understand that yeah um I think unfortunately yes I don't want to slate any brands but I think there is variation between the brands and um I think you have to be very careful when you're choosing your sunscreen to do your research Mm. um and checking reviews and also checking to see um so that they all have to pass EU regulation and you can check online to see whether like the the number of gold stars that the rating has so you could say SPF 50 but like if you look at the back of the label um it will tell you there will be a a little sticker on the back that will have a number of gold stars and that means that it's passed through EU regulation and it will tell you how effective that SPF is so if you go for the five star rating you know that you know it's a done deal that's a really good SPF so maybe you only got three stars perhaps this one doesn't work as well as you think a 50 would um, so again, it takes a bit of shopping around, but luckily there are a lot of different brands now, um, and there's a lot of stuff that you can try before you like before you like really settle on which one works for your skin. And I think, you know, different brands, different skin types. Not it's not one size fits all. So it's literally something I'd never thought about shopping around for. I know that's crazy. <laughs> I can't believe this is the first time as like an adult. I'm like, oh, I could could buy another type of sun cream and try it out. Yeah, and we often go for the one that, you know, we kind of grew up with, yeah. we kind of just go for the one that's on offer or the cheapest one, but um, I don't know, you know, like, you, you wouldn't buy shoes that don't fit you, so, you know, buy the this right SPF. truly never occurred to me, thank <laughs> you. Um, but I guess then thinking about what's in the gallery space, like, we can't see any of those, like, labels. We can't, no. So we're only looking at the front of the bottle when you see, um, when you see them in gallery, and I think interestingly like the most important part is actually the back of the label and what you get from that because on there is is a lot of the stuff that the brands can't dictate it's the things that the eu regulations have dictated that need to go on the label um and you have things as well like the the vegan bunny logo um you know cruelty free sunscreens are also like really popular at the moment and you know great types of products to buy and the label is the really interesting bit of um of that sunscreen not just the ingredients so the ingredients are really good to know the marketing and the branding is really great to know, but also the ingredients on the back. Again, 
if I had the chance to change that gallery, it'd be great to see the back of those bottles, to see like what we're looking for, and maybe like point out the different design elements because you know that five star rating looks the same on every single packaging. It has to so that you visually know that this is like a seal of approval. This is like a stamp that you know you can trust. Um, so that's really important. It's not something we talk about. Um, but I think something that's really relevant in helping to educate people about sunscreens. Yeah, and I think there's quite a lot of that in terms of um, the labelling on products for skin mm-hmm. stuff. There's loads of, like, I remember looking recently and, the, you know, they've got like, those tubs that are like open and it says like 12M. I was like, what is this? Yes, 12. Oh, so that, that one's really important to know as well. That's another really important label. So if you see the little um, sort of like drawing of a a tub and then there's like a number and then M after it that's how many months you can carry on using that product after you've opened it yeah so a lot of people don't know that and they're like oh what does that mean if you see six or you see three like often mascara will be the lowest number um if you see that you know if you've opened it then you know like you've only got that amount of time to use it and then even if you still have like a, a full tube left you need to chuck it away um and sunscreens that's really important they do go out of date um, so always buy a new one each summer. Don't carry on using the old ones. Nope. Although I was trying to work out what it would mean for things to go out of date if their sun cream is like the chemicals go off or... I think so, yeah. And um, I guess you, you're not sure how they're going to react. You know, if you're travelling with your sunscreen, it's out in the sun, it's, you know, you're yeah. putting it through a lot of different temperatures, hot and cold and stuff like that. We don't, like, they don't know how those chemicals are going to be settling and reacting under those all of those different conditions over time. They're going to break down naturally. They're not going to be as effective anymore and you're more likely to get the damage that you weren't expecting to get or like not be protected as highly as you thought you were. Mm. Um, so it's probably the best to, to buy a new sunscreen and just chuck away the old one, unfortunately. <laughs> so thinking about like this section in the context of the rest of the museum, so we talked a little bit about some of the stuff in the sun, about mm. like tuberculosis treatment and stuff. There isn't, I mean, the medicine gallery is under development. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is it something that's like, is that going to come in, do you know? It, like, might that be... A conversation because I don't think it's in the small bit of the medicine section that's there. Like, um, ooh, I hope there's a little bit about it in medicine. Um, definitely in the sun, there's going to be quite a bit about mm. that, um, which is obviously very relevant. Um, it's interesting though because the, our relationship with the sun and our relationship with like um, sun and the, and our health um, has changed a lot historically and. Um, you know, like humans are solar powered. <laughs> like we rely on the sun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like we need it. Um, you know, things like rickets and stuff. A lot. It has a lot to do with like public health. Um, and you know, the sun is always going to be there. And um, you know, that's the one thing you can change. Mm-hmm. So you know, you can go out in the sun. That is a really like easy, accessible type of medicine, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Is to go outside and like have some sort of sun exposure, or to limit your amount of sun exposure is a really easy, effective way to like change the course of your health Mm. um so it would be great to see some of that in the medicine gallery it would also be really great to sort of talk about the nuances between different types of people like i mentioned like people of color in the sun and like the way we treated like how uh the culture around like how we interact with the sun and our skin and and beauty ideals and things like that so i think there's a lot of really interesting conversations we could have and it's definitely something i would like to see in a more permanent fixture in our galleries um so yeah i think it's something that people probably don't see as being so scientific mm-hmm. um, because it's so tied in with like aesthetic choices and like culture culture yeah rather than science um, but it's like it's, it, I think it this conversation like breaks down the idea that it's 
not important scientifically, mm. like regardless of who you are. Yeah, um, so. yeah, definitely. I think, um, again, it's that thing of making it relevant to people. Um, like, the, yeah, there is a lot of science behind sunscreen. Um, you know, you have all these chemicals and things and you can talk about the materials and that's really fascinating. But the thing that is the most interesting bit is how it relates to us, it's how it relates to people who come into our galleries. And it would be really great for such an important thing like sun protection if everybody could quite easily latch on to that story and that idea and that narrative. Mm. Um, and I think that is one of the ways that we could do that. We should gorilla bomb the outside of the sun exhibition. We should. With lots of sunscreen stuff. I hope to see some sunscreen on sale <laughs> in the shop. I That would be fantastic. <laughs> they have, yeah, they should sell sunscreen there. That would be a great... We should. It, yeah, we should suggest that. <laughs> Even though we're going into winter now, but that's you still need to put the sun in the winter. Yes, it's very important still in the winter. And if you're lucky enough to go on a skiing holiday, we all know that's really important. Mm-hmm. Well, my friends from Australia, they wear it all the time. Mm. Like... Even even in the middle of winter in the UK, just like every day. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think that like in in hotter countries, you know, people are more switched on to sunscreens. In Australia, like everybody, you know, some of the best sunscreen brands are coming out of Australia now because people are really aware of like the damage it has caused and the number of health issues people have had because of sun damage. So they're really hot on it. They wear sunscreen all the time. Like it's really just ingrained now in part of everybody's daily routine. Whereas in the UK, because we you know spend six months in gloom and grey. We, we're not as aware SAD of, is a big thing yeah and so we're really not as aware of the benefits of wearing sunscreen every day or like incorporating it more into our daily routines um, I think maybe with social media and stuff like that things are changing you know like there's a really big community online of like skincare things and like you know there's like this phenomenon of uh, skincare education that's going on online at, right at the moment and mm. I think um, you know we're learning a lot from Australian American um people online of, of you know like how to wear sunscreens properly and like what sort of products we're using and now you know we're, we're able to buy products from different countries that we weren't able to do before so now you know like the market is a bit more open for these kind of things yeah because the ones in the gallery are just the ones from like yeah so Soltan yeah it's, yeah. A, it's a boots only company <laughs> <laughs> they're not selling that in the states they're not no <laughs> uh, but then it's interesting that those are also the ones that are like available in supermarkets like you were talking about some specific ones that you can buy online mm. from Amazon from the states yeah so there's a really great brand called Altruist um, who are a non-profit who are trying to make sunscreens more available and accessible to everybody and uh, the best thing about them is that they're not ashy so no matter how dark your skin is you can wear this brand of sunscreen and it has you know it's a really simple plain packaging but it's, it's the science that's there like um you know this is genuinely good sun sunscreens genuinely good skincare and it has all the up-to-date right ingredients that you need to protect yourself no matter what skin tone you are um, no matter what budget you have um, and it's accessible because it's Amazon almost every country can purchase Amazon products now so you've seen this really sort of like democratisation of um, sunscreen which you never had before so that's been a really interesting development I think um, and there's a lot of um, as I mentioned before I think some indie brands that are specifically aimed at uh, people of colour like um, black girl sunscreen and things like that who are really just sort of like finding their niche in the market and um, sort of seeing that gap and um, educating as well like it's, it's a public health issue and um, I think the education side is yeah really, really cool actually and like if we could swap out like maybe one or two of those sultan bottles and put in <laughs> a bottle of that like that is already without even interpretation that would be a great conversation starter for our visitors no matter what skin tone you are like you know talking about the misconception of like darker skin people not having to wear sunscreen or like oh I didn't know this product was available what is this about or like why does 
why do black people need a specific type of sunscreen like oh I didn't know about this like yeah. there's so much more you could do with that so yeah oh awesome well let's hope that the sun cream exhibition looks loads better in the future I'm just going to gorilla put some sunscreen yeah exactly we're just going to go and leave them there <laughs> just leave some samples out <laughs> uh, is there anything you would like to add that we haven't talked about Shaz so some public health things um, because this is Shaz's education on public health <laughs> Um, things that aren't in the gallery that really should be in there are um, sanitary products and I've heard through the grapevine that there is going to be some contemporary collecting done. <gasps> this is a huge gap in our collection and everybody is very aware of it. Um, funnily enough, I think it was a male curator who suggested it. Oh my goodness. And, um, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, really topical at the moment. So, you know, there's um, activists like Amika George who's like really campaigning against the tax on uh, sanitary products and making it accessible to everyone. You know, period poverty is a real big issue and um, sanitary products are incredibly expensive over a lifetime. Um, and um, it's a huge gap that we've, we've missed out in our collection. I think maybe that something historically to do with the audiences that we've been targeting and like the kind of focus that the medicine collection has been on so it'd be really great to see as well now especially that um period products are changing again so quickly so we have things like moon cups and like um menstrual sponges and like um what are those um those knickers that oh like, thinks yeah, yeah. Like, they sound amazing they yeah. sound my amazing. friend uses them apparently they're great oh, they're um, great and that would be incredible to have in our collection like it's a real snapshot yeah. of like what's happening at the moment and we've got things like um, periods and technologies like it's the first time ever that you know people are using apps so I use like the app clue which is incredible um, who doesn't use it if you don't have it get it it's great um, um, where you can track your period and it's the first time you know we're using like digital technology um, to assist with periods which is incredible and it's um, I think a really unique opportunity for the science museum to like catch on to like what the trends are and like what's happening and like um, changes in all of these different types of materials and things that we're using um, specifically for women's health. So yeah. Well, also like thinking about then being nothing to do with like tampons or pads or anything like that. There, like female uh, menstrual health. There's nothing to do with like condoms or any type of type of like sexual health product as mm. well, which has changed massively in the past like 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a huge condom collection. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it's massive. People love to come and see it. Oh my and... god, what? Why is yeah. not more of that on the challenge of materials? Right. Like, People would be there like a shot. Exactly, and it's like one of the most popular things. That researchers that ask about sure, sure um, we have like historic condoms we have novelty condoms we've got like all sorts of everything in between um, and again yeah it's the kind of thing that's changing all the time there's so much more available on the market now if we're talking about you know like gender and sexuality like people are more open than they've ever been allowed to be historically mm. and like this is a really great time for like developments in those types of products that are aimed specifically for different types of people now that weren't available in the past so I think that's a really another great opportunity for some contemporary collecting but then again you know we can see now where like um perhaps like two different like the medicine and the tech and end side of our of our collections haven't been speaking to each other to mm. be a great crossover period like it's not just about medicine anymore like these are about materials and this is about technology and things yeah. like that so, yeah just really cool developments yeah yeah cool awesome thank you so much for being a part of this is there thank anything you. you would like to plug uh, anything you want to tell you about yourself that we should know? Anywhere people can come and see you or learn more about your awesome uh, work? Oh, okay. Um, I guess I'll plug my Twitter account. Um, so I'm quite active on Twitter. If you want to know all things museum or you want to see some behind-the-scenes stuff that's going on with the collection at the Science Museum, I tend to post a lot about um, really cool objects that we have in our stores that we don't get out for the public very often um, and all of that kind of like behind-the-scenes stuff. My Twitter account is at ShazHussein93. 
Come find me. Would recommend. I do love your Twitter <laughs> account. It's one of my favourites. Um, and you talk a lot at conferences. I, I do, on. yeah. So I'm off to Amsterdam at the end of this week, and then I'm off to Denver next month, and I'm going to be talking all things to do with um, museums and about accessibility and about um, different types of voices and narratives in museums and things like that. Okay. And you're part of, uh, you, you lead a very, I'm going to, I'm plugging you for you. Um, you. You lead a very cool project with Museum Detox. Yes, so um, Museum Detox, um, who I'm a member of, they are a network of people of colour who work in museums. Um, and we've been doing a lot of sort of creative interventions and things like that in the last year. Um, and I look out for the White Privilege Clinic, where we sort of uh, try to challenge some of the um, daily microaggressions that may be going on within the workplace in museums but also in like the interpretation and what we present to the public um so yeah it's basically exactly what we've talked about just now yeah. putting <laughs> feedback on the science museum from white privilege clinic <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> so if you're interested in that yeah um at museum detox on twitter as well awesome well thank you so much Shaz. this has been thank great thank you it was really fun great that's it for this episode of Behind the Glass Cabinet. Thanks to Nicolette Chin, my editor and producer. Thanks to Sam Lee, the composer for the track of this podcast. And thank you to the University College of London Department for Culture and the Department for Science and Technology Studies, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. I've been Ellie Armstrong. You can find me online at, at Ellie the Element. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.